Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. It's great having you with us. Brad Omlin produces the show. Doing something a little bit different tonight. Every once in a while, I decide it's time to take a break. It's time to take a break from the news. Time to take a break from the headlines. And uh, spend some time just talking about ideas. Talking about philosophy. Talking about how these notions of liberty that inform our analysis of the headlines night after night. You know, where they come from and how they apply in, you know, to some degree a broader sense. But also a deeper, more specific exploration of these ideas and we're going to do such a thing tonight the theme for this evening is eight things government can't do for you eight things government can't do for you now why is it important to reflect upon those things which government cannot do well there there are a variety of different angles from which you could approach answering that question i think most apropos to politics and the news that we discuss on a night-to-night basis and the type of things that you typically tune into a station like this, Twin Cities News Talk 4, very frequently you know, we encounter arguments in the public sphere when we're discussing policy, when we're discussing candidates and elections and campaigns, arguments for government. And there's a certain sense in which that follows naturally. You know, you, when you're when you're talking about an institution that people are vying to be a part of, when you're talking about candidates who are, are applying for the job of being your representative or your governor or your president or your senator or whatever the case may be, it follows logically that you would be asking of them what they're going to do for you with their position if you vote for them, if they obtain it, if they're elected. And that follows logically. What are you going to do for me if I support you? But this, of course, is a path to down a very dangerous slope of ever-increasing, ever-expansive government that becomes more and more powerful and, as a result, subjugates the individual. And we've spent plenty of time on this program talking about the importance of the individual and the importance of individual rights. You know, the purpose of the rightful moral purpose of government is to protect those rights. And and the notion of government necessarily being, you know, small, that's a piece of rhetoric that, even though I've employed it, I don't think it's particularly accurate. I'm not I'm not necessarily interested in government being small. I'm interested in government being precisely the size it properly ought to be and properly needs to be in order to accomplish its sole purpose, which is to protect individual Right. The problem, though, politically, if you find yourself you know, either identifying as a libertarian or identifying as a conservative who nonetheless, for what, regardless of monikers, is pursuing a smaller government than the status quo, you find yourself running against the grain, even amongst supposed conservative constituencies, even amongst you know, people who say they're for small government, say they're for you know, cutting the scope and cutting the role. When you really get down to it, especially nowadays, especially in the era of Donald Trump, everybody wants something from the state. 
and everybody's lined up with their hand out, asking, begging, demanding that they get their piece of the pie. And so the challenge for somebody who is pursuing a more, perhaps you call it libertarian agenda, or you could just as easily and just as accurately call it a truly conservative agenda, in so much as real conservatism is the conservation of liberty, the conservation of those founding principles codified in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, to the extent that you're pursuing that, you find yourself in a difficult spot, stuck between a bit of a rhetorical rock and hard place. In so much as you're going out there asking people to elect you so that you can do less. Vote for me, and I'll give you less of what you're getting now. Vote for me, and I'm going to scale back the state that you benefit from, from one degree to one degree or another. Vote for me, and there'll be less government checks, less security, quote-unquote, that you perceive coming from the state. And this is a difficult sell. And the, the left knows that it's a difficult sell, and, and they also know that the right is reluctant to fully embrace this notion that there there properly ought to be less government than there is today. And so they capitalize on that. You know, the the term Medicare for all and this move right now from the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to push Medicare for all, that's a very carefully crafted, tested phrase that they've chosen to adopt as opposed to nationalized health care or universal health care or the socialist takeover of medicine, which is what it really is, they've chosen to adopt that language because they recognize that broadly across partisan divisions, people perceive Medicare as a good thing. And so how do you approach the public? How do you go out there and campaign on providing less of what people perceive to be a value? And I think the place we need to start is with the list we're going to go through tonight which is the, t- the things that are important, the things that we need in order to not just survive, but actually thrive and enhance our lives, which cannot be provided by government, and which the in excess of government actually prevents us from being able to secure. So what's the top thing? Or not this? We're going to do this in reverse order from what I hold to be the, the least profound item on the list and we're going to work our way through the night to what is the big daddy the biggest item on the list the first thing i want to start with is government cannot produce literally anything at all government cannot produce now i imagine if i were to say this in the company of a lefty they would roll their eyes and say, what are you talking about, Walter? Government gave us the Hoover Dam. Government has given us our roads, right? It's given us the interstate highway system. Government put a man on the moon. How can you possibly argue? Government provided the the war machine that won World War II, right? How can you possibly claim that government can't produce literally anything at all? Well, let's define our terms, shall we? What do we mean by production? What does it take to produce? Production is more, production and productivity is more than just making something. It's more than just creating something. It's, it's everything that comes along with that creation. 
It's the investment of your effort, your resources, the infusing of your life, and and the assumption of the cost, the assumption of the risk. Government cannot do this because government is not a person. And only people, only individual human beings can invest effort and assume cost and assume risk. So in reality, what government does, when government decides that it's going to, quote, produce something, unquote, what it's really doing is it's pointing a metaphorical and occasionally literal gun at people's heads and making them produce whatever it is that's coming out the other end of the process. So, you know, for instance, you know, the Hoover Dam. Yes, government produced the Hoover Dam, quote unquote, but how did it do so? It had to go to the taxpayers, which fork over their money under coercion. If you don't pay your taxes and you are defiant about it for long enough, eventually literal men with guns will come to your house and they will drag you out and put you in handcuffs and take and throw you in a cage, right? Like this is, those are the conditions under which you have to fork over your money that you have invested your effort and your time into earning. And more than just effort and time, when we talk about effort and time, you know, this is something that, that really needs to be highlighted. What we're really talking about when we talk about people's money and talk about people's property, when we talk about property in any sense, the best definition I've ever heard of property, and I believe Ayn Rand is the one who came up with this, the best definition out there for property is the frozen form of life. Your property is a physical, tangible representation of your life, life you have expended in order to acquire it. You have taken your time, which is finite, and expended your effort, which is finite, and infused your life, your purpose, your mind. You focused your mind and your body towards the end of producing the property that you own. And so when somebody else comes along, whether it's a thief, a mugger, or the tax man, and takes that from you under force, under coercion, they are quite literally taking your life. Now, not in the sense of murdering you, right? Like usually when we use the term take a person's life, we mean they've been murdered, they've been killed, their life was taken, it's over, it's done. But there are lesser degrees to which your life can be taken. Every time your capacity to live your life as you so choose is impeded, a piece of your life has been taken. You know, you often hear people use the term along the lines of, you know, if you come out of, you come out of a movie that you didn't like, well, I'm never going to get those two hours back. There is a truth to that, right? You, you do only have so many hours in the day, so many days in your life that you get to live. And so to the extent that somebody comes along and takes your property or, or, or ties you to a tree and leaves you there and keeps you from being able to do what you want to do, they are literally taking a portion of your life. That's how important property rights are. That's how sacred they are. And, and that's why we, we ought to be much more jealous in terms of our defense of our property, much more, much less tolerant in terms of allowing violations of individual personal property and private property, and also why we shouldn't stand in awe of the great things which government has, quote, produced, unquote. Everything government has done that we stand in awe. You know what other great monument there is? 
to the wonder of the state, the pyramids in Egypt, right? One of the one of the eight wonders of the world, seven wonders of the world, the great pyramids. We stand in awe of them. We look back in time and we, we, we get romantic notions of the majesty of the Egyptians. Lest we forget, how were the pyramids built? Who actually did the labor? Who drugged the bricks and placed them one on top of the other? It wasn't paid workers. It was slaves. And nowadays, you know, we have contractors, we have government contractors, people who get paid to do the work, and, that, and, and they agree to the job, right? But where does the money come from with which they are paid? From you and from me and from taxpayers under the threat of force. So instead of directly building the pyramids with actual slaves, we just pay the workers with money derived from a larger pool known as taxpayers. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Talk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Show produced by Brad Omlin. Doing something a little bit different this evening. Taking a break from the news. There, there wasn't a whole lot that happened today anyway, right? <laughs> eh, not much worth talking about. You know, sometimes I just, I, I get enough of it. You know what I'm saying? Doing this night after night for hours a day, you know, thumbing through social media feeds, reading headlines, you know, being deep into the collective consciousness of our insane culture. You know, every once in a while, I just need to push the pause button and just chat with you guys for a little bit. And we're doing that tonight. We're going through eight things government can't do for you. A topic which I maintain is important because we, we need to have, we need to be able to build the case that too much government is a bad thing. That government has a lane that it should stay in. And that there are good reasons for it to stay in that lane. And one of the ways to build that case is to highlight the extent to which Many of the single most important things in our lives, the single most important things in human civilization, cannot be done by government. And to the extent that government attempts to do them, it only serves to impede our capacity to pursue those values. So let's get right into it. We started off with government cannot produce literally anything at all. That was the first item on the list. The notion being, yeah, sure, government makes stuff. That's true. Government definitely has made things. But it does so through coercion. It does so by forcing you to invest your effort, your time, your money, your life, in essence, into the production of what it wants. Not pursuing your values, but diverting your life to the pursuit of its values. The second thing that government can't do for you that I want to go over tonight is determine worth. Determine worth. Now, specifically, and this is very closely related to the next thing we're going to talk about in the next segment, but in this case, I'm talking about economic value. It's true of moral worth as well, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the program. But specifically here, I'm talking about economic value. 
And this is something we, we hit almost nightly on the program as we go through the various headlines. That economic value, first of all, one of the standing rules here on the program that we've talked about before that is apropos to this point is that economic value, that phrase, sound, it just sounds inherently boring. Right? Econo- anything with the word economics in it or econ or, or uh, anything along those lines, part of your soul goes to sleep when you hear terminology like that. But it shouldn't because economics is extraordinarily important because economic value is human value, right? You know, we, when, in the first segment when we talked about production being something that only human beings can do, economic value is human value in the sense that anything that has economic value is given it through the expenditure of human life. A human being decided to take a piece of land and cultivate it in order to produce a crop that they've then harvested and brought to market. And so the economic value of their produce is the human value that they've invested in producing it. And so in, when we realize that, when we pause to reflect upon that, it should give us a sense of reverence for what economic value is. Economic value is the expended life of real human beings who have poured a part of their, their being into the creation of something. And therefore, it, it cannot be and should not be tampered with by the state. We determine economic value, we determine the worth of a thing, the worth of something, by this thing called price. Price is the signal which tells us, which signals to us what economic value is. And price is determined by the point, at the point of exchange at which a buyer and a seller are willing to engage in trade. And that, that willing to engage, you know, the mutual consent involved in the transaction is absolutely key because there's only one circumstance under which two parties who have different things of value that they are willing to trade. There's only one circumstance under which they will consent to the exchange. And that's when both of them believe that they're going to walk away from the transaction better off than they were before. There, there is no circumstance wherein you agree to, a tr- to an exchange, you agree to a transaction or to a trade where you don't think you're going to be better off than you were before. And this applies, it applies not just to, you know, going to the grocery store or going to the gas station or what have you. It also applies to things like charity. Now, you might think, well, what do you mean charity? Charity is giving up. It's Charity is a sacrifice. You're giving up something of value, and you're not getting anything in return. But is that really true? Do you get nothing in return for your acts of charity? If so, why do you engage in them, right? Like, what's the? why would you engage in a charitable act if it didn't provide something for you, even if the thing it provides is a sense of worth, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of having done something decent for another person, of having conveyed a sense of appreciation and respect and dignity and value to another human being. That's what you get in exchange. And if you didn't feel as though you were achieving that, if you didn't feel as though you were getting that value in exchange for the charity, you wouldn't engage in it. And I can prove it to you. 
every single day there are charities that you don't contribute to. Every single day there are people that you drive by on a freeway with their hand out with a sign at a corner that you don't stop and hand money to. And why is that? Why aren't you giving away everything you have to people in need, to people who have less than you? And this is this is specifically apropos for, you know, the lefties amongst us who think that that income inequality is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind and civilization. If you truly believe that, then there is no end. You you are never going to reach the point at which you have fully redistributed all the wealth. Because there's always going to be somebody somewhere on the globe who has less. And at what point are you going to stop and say, okay, we've reached that point at which it's no longer worthwhile to take from those few remaining who have in order to divvy up to everybody who doesn't. And that point, you know, for those of us who are not socialists, that point is where you no longer have that exchange of value, where you no longer have, where you're no longer actually affirming something with which you believe when you engage in charity. Because that's the thing about charity. That's what makes it charity. It's not the giving of something. It's not the, re- re- charity is not redistribution of wealth. That's not what it is. Charity is an expression. It's a form of expression. It's you saying that you find worth in a, in a specific person, in another specific human being. I find worth in you, and I want to help you. I want to give you a leg up. And we know this. We know that this is what charity is, because how do the recipients of actual charity from, from another actual person. When, when you receive something, when you're in need and members of your church come to your house with a meal around Thanksgiving or whatever the circumstances may be, how do you react? How do you feel towards those who are expressing charity toward you? And the answer, hopefully, is that you feel grateful. You feel appreciated. You feel loved. You feel valued, right? And that you wouldn't feel that way if it wasn't true. You wouldn't feel that way if it wasn't sincere. Like if somebody came, let, let's, let's give another example. Let's say a government agent from a given bureaucracy who was hired to do a job of handing out checks for whatever reason, instead of mailing them to your house, you got a guy who, whose job it is to hand out the government checks. He comes to your door, he rings the doorbell, and he's like, he's like, yes, Mr. Smith, um, just uh, of uh, one, two, three, four, uh, Main Street. Yes, okay. Here's your check. All right, have a good night. Would you feel grateful then? Would you feel valued under those circumstances? Would you feel appreciated and uplifted and, and made much of? No, you would feel like you would feel. You might feel a little bit worse than you did before you got the handout. Why? Because you're not being valued as an individual human being. You're not you're not being given the uh, a sense of worth to a person who who is expressing their charity to you because they want to give it to you. There's an exchange that takes place there. And to the extent that government displaces charity with wealth redistribution programs, it prevents this sort of relationship. It prevents this sort of exchange. Government cannot determine worth, either in the economic sense of a price or in the relational sense of charity. 
closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We stream at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's great having you with us. Brad Omlin produces the show. Shaking things up a bit tonight. We're diverting from our usual course of going through the news and reacting to the same. In order to spend a little bit of time talking about ideas, talking about get, digging a little deeper into the notions and principles and concepts that inform our analysis of the headlines night after night. And we're doing so in the form of a list. I've come up with this list of eight things government can't do for you. And I believe that it's important to be able to build this case that much of life, indeed the vast majority of life, and the vast majority of the values that we pursue and jealously protect in our lives are not provided for us by government and indeed cannot be provided for us by government. And by by recognizing that, by building that case, and it's not a difficult case to build, by the way, by doing so, we create out of necessity limitations upon the scope that government should have and the role that it should have in our lives. Because if indeed the overwhelming majority of the things of value that exist in our life do not come from government, then we need to keep government in its lane and keep government away from our capacity to pursue those things of value. And so we started off talking about how government cannot produce literally anything at all. It can only, at the point of a gun, take some portion of your life in the form of your property, your money, and use that in order to pay other people to produce things. Government cannot determine worth. It cannot determine economic value nor can it determine relational value in the form of charity. And we'll talk more about the charity aspect here momentarily. For this segment, I want to focus on the fact that government cannot determine truth. Government cannot determine truth. Now, I mean this both in the factual scientific sense and also in the philosophical sense or the religious sense. Government cannot tell you what is or isn't true. And there are a variety of ways in which we recognize this, or at least we have recognized this in the past. One of the most obvious is the First Amendment of the Constitution, the number one thing on the list of Bill of Rights, which is the freedom of speech. The freedom of speech, implicit in the freedom of speech, is the notion that government has no business telling us what we can express and how we can express it. Government has no business telling us what we can worship and how we can express our faith. And this is not an endorsement, you know, one way or the other. It's not this is not government saying, well, your your religion has value, nor is it government saying your religion doesn't have value or that your speech does or does not have value. This is a neutral position that we're asking government to take. Government's lane is a neutral lane when it comes to quality judgments or value judgments. We're not asking government's opinion one way or the other. Government should have no opinion on these matters. 
We are the ones, individuals, determine what is true. Now, as a quick aside here, don't let the don't get me wrong. Don't take this as some sort of endorsement of moral relativism. I'm not suggesting here that there's no such thing as absolute truth or objective truth, that there, that there aren't certain things that are absolutely right and other things which are absolutely wrong. I believe that wholeheartedly, and I maintain that. What I'm saying is, is that from the perspective of government, within the jurisdiction of the state, it does not get to decide what is right and what is wrong. It does not get to decide what is true and what is false. That is a determination that is properly left to the individual and to the community, which is several individuals interacting with each other in a marketplace of ideas towards the end of trying to discover and reaffirm what the truth is. And of course, you know, we see this, this is very apropos to the moment we find ourselves in right now. We've been talking quite a bit lately about deplatforming, right? Which, you know, isn't a government action yet, but there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk of government taking action one way or the other to affect our interactions with each other on social media and in the public discourse and to try to determine, you know, what is right and what is wrong and to take a position and to, to shut people down and to deplatform that deplatform them and whatnot. And what this does is it, it has the same effect. I, I often compare the marketplace of ideas, which I think is a very apt metaphor, to an actual literal economic marketplace. In so much as price is a, a numerical representation of value. It's a, it's a number that very specifically represents a truth about the economic value of a particular product or service. When you go to the gas station and you look at the sign and it says $2.50 a gallon, that is true, right? Like that's the truth about that gas. It is $2.50 a gallon. That is its economic value. That is the point at which buyers and sellers are willing to say, okay, that's the mutually beneficial point of exchange. And to the extent that government comes in and interferes with that, now setting aside the fact that we all know government has interfered with it, like the actual price of gas would be very different if it wasn't for all the interference of government, but be that as it may, to the extent that government interferes in that process, it distorts the truth. It changes the truth. You know, another area in which we see this economically is with food and nutrition. It's it's cheaper to eat poorly in this country. And a large part of the reason why it's cheaper to eat poorly is because the the carbohydrates which make up the bulk of the American diet are heavily subsidized by the state. And so the the truth that otherwise would be reflected in an accurate price for sugar and wheat and bread and all these things that fatten us and cause diabetes and cause heart disease the truth that ought to be reflected in the price for those things is distorted by the interference of the state. In a similar sense, when we talk about the marketplace of ideas, truth is a casualty of state intervention. You know, as people are 
shut down as people are denied their right to organize uh, in 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 groups in corporate fashions, whether it be you know five hundred one c three, five hundred one c four, the IRS harassment under the Obama administration, as an example, uh, people are caught up in campaign finance restrictions. They're not able to rally their own resources and develop their own relationships and organize around a particular cause or express themselves in a particular way because there are various laws that have been set up to cage them in and shut them down and stifle them and extinguish their thoughts. To the extent that that happens, we are also prevented from discovering the truth about various ideas in the public discourse because the speech regarding those ideas is suppressed. And speech... The exchange of ideas is how we discover what is true and what is false. You know, you want to talk about fake news? I'll use this example. Muhammad Noor, the Somali ex-Minneapolis police officer who shot Justine Damon. There was a story that I read in my news feed, and we talked about it here on the show, and I reacted to it immediately. And my immediate reaction was a condemnation of the Minneapolis Police Department and Muhammad Noor because the story as it was reported was that during a traffic stop, Muhammad Noor had pulled his gun without provocation and pointed at the head of a motorist, ostensibly because that motorist had flicked off a bicyclist. So an extreme overreaction, right? And so that being the information at hand, I reacted to it, something to the effect of, this is horrific, he should have been fired at the time, you know, why, why is this guy even on the force? And, you know, setting aside the fact that those are all legitimate conclusions, it turns out there was more to this particular story. Later on, it was uncovered that Muhammad Noor, that that, under that circumstance, it's likely, possible, probable even, that there was more to the story, that the motorist in question had done more than just flick off a bicyclist, that they had refused to stop, when the light, when the flashing lights and sirens came on behind them, that they had led Muhammad Noor and his partner on a little bit of a chase. That once they did stop, they were gesticulating in the vehicle in such a way as to suggest that they might be trying to dispose of some contraband or reach for a gun, perhaps. And so those are circumstances under which it makes a lot more sense that the officers would have pulled their weapons and had them at the ready as they approached the vehicle. Right now, why do I tell this story in the context of trying to make this point that government cannot determine truth? Because the the way at which the rest of us who weren't there and didn't see this incident occur, the way the rest of us get to the truth of the situation is by taking in all of the different perspectives and all of the different stories regarding what happened and then analyzing them and synthesizing them into our understanding of the truth. And that means, that requires that everybody who has a first-hand account of what took place be allowed to tell their story. It requires that we have maximum access to the greatest amount of information. That's how we discover the truth of a situation. And to the extent that government or other institutions, large corporate institutions like Facebook, Twitter, you know, deplatforming people and what have you, to the extent that they're trying to shut down speech, they are depriving us of perspective, which is the building block from which we construct our understanding of the truth. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. 
Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Brad Holmland produces the show. Took a little bit uh, too much time with those segments this hour. We won't, we've got a, less than three minutes to get into item number four on our list that we're counting down of things that government can't do. Things that government can't do for you. We've gone through a number of them. Government can't produce literally anything at all. It can only compel other people to give up some portion of their life in order to produce things. Government cannot determine worth, either in the sense of economic value or in the relational sense, in terms of the worth of human beings. We're going to expound upon that next hour. Government cannot determine truth, either in terms of factual scientific truth or in the philosophical or religious sense. Government does not have the capacity to determine for us what is true. That is something that we have to do on our own, by ourselves. As a community, we can do it in concert with others, but ultimately individuals, you know, the nature of human beings being individual, you have to determine for yourself. You have to accept what is true. And we could spend quite a bit of time expounding upon that, but you know, I already spent too much time talking about it this hour, so let's hit number four, which fortunately doesn't take a lot of, of time to demonstrate anyway. And that is government cannot keep you safe. Government cannot keep you safe. Now, this is something that we all fall into relying upon or believing regardless of whether you're liberal, conservative, even libertarians fall down this particular rabbit hole of believing that government can or should, in some level, keep us safe. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have cops, we shouldn't have law enforcement, we shouldn't have mechanisms in place to to respond to threats, we shouldn't have a military. And, of course, the role of the military is to protect us from foreign threats, right? And in that sense, you could argue their job is to keep us safe. The job of police is to respond to criminal activity. And in that sense, you could argue their job is to keep us safe. But my point here is not to suggest that there aren't legitimate roles for government to play in the the prevention of bad things happening. What I mean to to drive home is the notion that at the end of the day, when all else is accounted for, when all else is said and done, you are the only person who can t- keep make yourself safe, who can keep yourself safe. You have to take the action through self-defense, through your own preparation, through your own providing for your needs to make sure that you and your family are safe. Government cannot ultimately do that for you. You cannot rely on them for it. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. You can listen to us 9 to 11 weeknights live here on the station. Or you can check out past shows or stream us by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up for you. Brad Omland produces the show. Taking a little bit of different approach to the program this evening, instead of ticking through the news and reacting to the headlines of the day, we're spending some time unpacking a little bit of our philosophy, discussing some of the principles that we apply towards the analysis 
of those news items on a night-to-night basis. And we're doing so in the form of a list. And the list is eight things government can't do for you. And we went through four in the first hour. We're going to go through another four this hour. And we're doing so in an order that is purposeful. You know, I started with the thing that I felt was least profound. And we're working our way up towards the big daddy, the overall catch-all thing that government can't do for you that I think is the ultimate case. You know, the, the purpose in discussing these items is to get us to think about and to get us in the mode of advocating for the case for individual rights, the case for individuality, and the case for keeping government in its lane, for limiting government to accomplish its sole moral purpose, which is the preservation of individual rights. That's what it exists for. That's what we need it for. That's what it can do. It can protect individual rights. It can administrate justice, not perfectly, but it is the entity we need. You know, it's, it may not be the, it may not be the hero we deserve, but it's the hero we need when it comes to administrating justice. We need to have that objective, exclusive third party that can administrate, arbitrate disagreements and administer justice when the law has been violated, when, when rights have been violated. But beyond that, it's very important that government remain constrained. And the founders, of course, knew this. This was the essence codified in the Declaration of Independence. And it was on the hearts and minds of everyone involved in the crafting and ratification of the Constitution of these United States. And it's something that, to a large degree, many of us, you know, all of us to some degree, have lost sight of. And so that's why it's important to re-express and re-establish the, the necessity for keeping government in a corner where it belongs so that the rest of us can remain free to do the things which government can't. And so what are these things? So far we've discussed government cannot produce literally anything at all. In order to do so, it has to point a gun at the head of taxpayers, seize that which they have expended their lives in order to obtain their property, their, their currency, their money, and then redeploy that towards values which government determines against the will, at the end of the day, of the individuals whom it was taken from. Government cannot determine worth, either in the economic sense or in the relational sense, in terms of what a thing, a product or service is worth, or in terms of what people are worth, and we're going to explore that this, this segment more deeply. Government cannot determine truth. It cannot tell you what is true or what is false, what is factual or what is non-factual. That's something that only individuals working to, together with one another in a free exchange of ideas can arrive at. You determine what is true, which is not to suggest that there isn't an absolute truth, merely that in order for you to arrive at an understanding of what that absolute truth is, you must be free to do so. Government cannot do that for you. And then lastly, last hour, we talked about the fact that government cannot keep you safe. And that one's probably the most counterintuitive one. Because I think across the spectrum, across the board, we all kind of have this expectation that government does keep us safe and is supposed to keep us safe. We just got done recognizing uh, one of the anniversaries, the most recent anniversary of 9-11. And of course, that was a moment at which our sense of safety, our illusion of security was completely shattered. And we found ourselves 
in a in a situation where we desperately wanted to reestablish it, which has led to a lot of things that uh, I would argue are inappropriate in terms of the the growth of the security state the entire the development of entire new department the department of homeland security the war on terror what have you the the only way to or the prerequisite for keeping government in its lane when it comes to those types of abuses or excesses is by recognizing that government ultimately cannot keep us safe and that's not to say that we, should, we there shouldn't be institutions such as law enforcement, police officers, the military, that there shouldn't be institutions to do a very specific job, part of which is intended towards keeping us safer than we otherwise would be, but merely to suggest that the ultimate responsibility for your safety lies with you. The ultimate responsibility for your family's safety lies with you. You know, even when you call the cops... There's still going to be a period of time during which it's on you. Nobody, Nobody's coming to your rescue in those first few seconds, those first few minutes. You have to be prepared. You have to acquire the knowledge and skills. You have to be ready to do what's necessary to defend yourself or to provide aid to those who you care for, your family, your friends, your neighbors. Which leads us into item number five on this list of things that government can't do. Government can't be compassionate. It can't. Now, there's a technical reason for this. There's a technical reason why government can't be compassionate, and that's because of what government is. Government lacks the nature which compassion requires. Compassion is inherently a product of human life, human thought, a human mind. And human beings, by our nature, are individuals. There's no such thing as corporate compassion. A group cannot be compassionate towards anyone. An organization or a corporation or a government cannot be compassionate in any meaningful sense. Only an individual can. An individual applying their own values to a consideration of particular cases and applications to particular relationships can express compassion in particular ways. Government lacks the ability to do this. And, you know, the aside from the fact that government isn't a human being that has the type of agency that an individual person does, there's also the nature of what government does and is and how it acts. Government, as George Washington so aptly put, is force. That's it. That's its essential nature. It's coercion. It's compulsion. And we, we entrust government with a legal monopoly on force because we recognize that that's necessary, that we can't have force being wielded willy-nilly out in the public by anyone towards any end. Force has to be kept in its place. Force has to be kept in its lane, which is another way of saying government has to be kept in its lane. And the lane that force rightfully has in a moral, just, free society is to be used in retaliation against those who initiate force. So against the criminal, against the foreign aggressor, against the perpetrator of fraud. Those should be the proper objects of force, the proper objects of government. And because government is force, you know, the co- compassion and being compassionate and considerate and respectful towards human beings is 
is inherently something that can't be forced, right? You know, here here's a an illustration for you. Imagine, you know, we we all you've got a spouse, right? And hopefully every day, at least once a day, you tell your spouse that you love them. And they tell you that they love you. And I, I hope that you believe them. <laughs> and I hope that they believe you. And I hope neither one of you are lying. And that you actually do love each other. right? But what if, what if your spouse wouldn't tell you that they loved you? had refused to do so for quite some time. And then one day they finally did. One day they finally said, oh, okay, I, I, I do. I love you. I really do. But the circumstance was that some third party was holding a gun to their head. Some third party was threatening to shoot them, threatening to kill them. And under that circumstance, under that duress, they were saying that they loved you. Now, at that point, would you believe them? Would you take that expression seriously or would you question its veracity? And I think we all know the answer, right? Of course, we would call into question an expression of compassion or love or respect or sentiment that was offered under the threat of force. And yet, when we reflect upon the fact that government is force, we quickly realize that any attempt by government to be quote unquote compassionate is analogous to that illustration. The, the the idea that we need to that government needs to be sympathetic to the victims of a hurricane, for example. Government needs to be compassionate towards the victims of a hurricane. Well, how does it go about doing that? Well, again, you know, government can't produce anything at all. All it can do is point a metaphorical and or literal gun at the heads of taxpayers, take their money, take their property, and then redirect it towards values that have been determined through the legislature or through an executive or a bureaucrat, right? Who in that exchange is expressing compassion to whom? You can't argue that it's the bureaucrat or the politician who's being compassionate because they're not utilizing their own resources. You can't argue that the taxpayer is being compassionate because they didn't choose to engage in charity. They haven't developed or established or expressed in actual relationship with the victims of this circumstance, right? So there, there is no compassion involved in this scenario. There's a redistribution of wealth. There's a certain utility that you can argue for, but it cannot be rightfully said that anybody involved in that situation, in that arrangement, is in any way compassionate. Now, there is a false sense that people have you know, a false sense of self-satisfaction in the, the sense that they're being compassionate when they advocate for government action along those lines. You know, they, they think, well, I voted in order to make that happen, therefore I'm being compassionate. But, you know, that that's about, that's worth almost precisely the same. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and say it's worth exactly the same morally as liking a Facebook post. That's what it's worth. Like the effort of voting for the government to take its monopoly on force and wield it to seize the property of your neighbors so that that wealth can be redistributed to somebody who you think needs it says as much about you 
and your moral contribution to society as liking a Facebook post, which is to say it says nothing at all because you have done nothing. Voting for something is not acting to make a real thing of actual value happen. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Great having you with us. Brad Omelin produces the show. We've been going down a list of eight things government can't do for you. And it's been fascinating, if I do say so myself. I, I enjoy, you know, I got to tell you, I, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into how I was going to talk about these different items. I made the list, and then I just came in here and started turning on the mic and talking about it. So... You know, I'm in the process of discovery the same as you are by just kind of going through the list and pontificating on it and thinking about it and unpacking it. You're hearing it as I'm thinking it is basically what I'm trying to say here tonight. So it's it's as interesting to me as hopefully it is to you to go through this exercise. Eight things government can't do for you. Now, we're getting into this second hour. You know, the first hour we focused on a lot of things that were kind of utilitarian in nature, keeping you safe, producing things of value, determining value. This hour, we're, we're as we move up the scale of importance in our list, we're starting to dive more into things of, of more substance, of more of a, of a spiritual value. You know, we just talked about how the fact that government cannot be compassionate. It lacks both the nature and the capacity to be compassionate. This segment, I want to take that a little bit further. Government cannot convey dignity, respect, and love. And it can't do so for the same reasons that it can't be compassionate, right? Like, being compassionate is, or can be, you know, expressions of charity can be an effort and largely our efforts to convey a sense of dignity, convey a sense of respect, convey a sense of love. And basically, another way to make this point that I'm trying to make is that government cannot be in a relationship. Government doesn't have a relationship with you. And government isn't the means by which we express relationship with each other. And this is something that the left talks about frequently. They, When they talk about government, they do so with this kind of reverence, as if government is this, this collective project that we all contribute to and are doing together, like we're one big happy family. But I don't know about you, but, you know, my family doesn't deal with each other at the point of a gun, right? Like my, my family, we may have arguments, we may get into it every once in a while, you know, but whether it's the, the nuclear family or the extended family. But at no point does anybody pull out a weapon and threaten bodily harm or captivity or, or, you know, it put some kind of fine on somebody if they refuse to cooperate. You know, our relationships are based upon consent, right? And that goes for your friends, it goes for your church, it goes for your workplace. Force is not something that's part of actual human relationship. 
And so, you know, this is important because the entire purpose of going through this list tonight is to establish that there's a significant, indeed a supermajority portion of our lives, which government properly has no role in whatsoever, that government cannot and should not attempt to touch, that government needs to stay in its lane, and it needs to do so because it's important that we have the capacity to do all these things which government can't. It's important for us to produce things. It's important for us to determine economic value and the worth of, of individuals. It's important for us to determine what's true, what's factual. It's important for us to take the action necessary to keep ourselves safe and to provide for ourselves and to provide for our families and to protect ourselves and to protect that which we value. And it's important for us to be compassionate, to convey dignity, to be respectful, and to love one another. It's important to do those things. In other words, to have relationships, because that's what relationships are. All relationships are a degree of dignity, respect, and love. Even the minor ones, even the ones that are like once in a lifetime, you know, the person who you open the door for, right? Like you're traveling across the country and you're out of state and you open the door for a mother and her kids at a gas station, as you're passing through. And that is the only time your life is going to intersect with that woman and her children from the point that the point that any of you are alive and no other point in your lives mutually are you ever going to see each other again. But for that instant, that moment, you have a relationship. You have a degree of dignity, respect, and love that you are trying to convey. Now, it's a, it's a very small amount. Right. <laughs> it's not it's not particularly profound, but it is there. Like, why are you holding the door open for strangers? Why do we say thank you to to the clerk across the counter at the gas station for, you know, doing his part in our transaction? Why do we tip our, our hats to people and nod at people and wave at them and, and say good morning? All these little micro relationships that we have, we do it in order to convey a sense of dignity, respect, and a very particular type of love. That's what relationship is. And that's something that government can not do. And to the extent that it tries, it it fails. <laughs> it fails miserably. And it actually, it does worse than fail. It fails because, as we've covered, it lacks the nature, it lacks the capacity to act in a relationally affirming manner. But it's worse than that, because to the extent that government tries to be compassionate, tries to be charitable, tries to convey dignity and respect and love, it actually displaces real relationships. When you take my money and you redistribute it to a cause which you deem to be virtuous or charitable in other words you know a, a social program you give it away in welfare when you take my money you have deprived both me and the person you give it to of the opportunity and even the possibility of relationship because you've taken that you've taken the medium by which such a relationship occurs right like Charity is only charity is made possible through the the 
the ownership of property with which to be charitable in the first place, right? Like a prerequisite for charity is having something to be charitable with. And so to the extent that you take my property, what I have to be charitable with, you have now deprived me of the opportunity to ever at any point be charitable with that property which you took. You've displaced human relationship. And we see this manifest in both a micro and macro scale in terms of its effect on our culture, whereby you don't have, you know, from for, for people who are receiving on a regular basis, on an institutional basis, on a generational basis, receiving handouts from the state, they'll develop a sense of entitlement to get that which is given to them without any sort of relational strings, without a conveyance of dignity, respect, and love, right? Because if somebody's actually charitable to you, if somebody walks up to you in your state of need and they reach into their wallet and they pick out cash that you know that they earned through their work, through their productivity, and they hand it to you, they put it in your hand and they look you in the eye and they say, take this and feed your family, Take this and put clothing on your children. That is that is a conveyance of dignity, respect, and love that you feel deep down in your soul. There is a relationship happening at that moment. No matter how well you do or do not know that person. Right? And that has an effect upon you spiritually. It has a spiritual effect. It's transformative. This is why you see churches and religious institutions engaged in charity, right? Because it has a transformative effect upon people's lives. It's, it's a, a cleansing activity for both the person giving and the person receiving. It sets a standard to aspire toward. And when you're the recipient of that, it inspires you to self-improvement. If you've been the recipient of actual, genuine charity, if you've been the recipient of dignity, respect, and love conveyed upon you by another person, it inspires you to become worthy of what you have received and to put yourself in a position where you no longer need to depend upon the charity of someone else and, better yet, you can be in a position to pay that charity forward to someone else. Now, why would we want to get in the way? Why would we ever want to displace or prevent that type of relationship with something as cold and heartless as the state? Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Your iHeartRadio app. All different ways that you can listen to us. 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Brad Omeland produces the show. We've been going through a list of eight things government can't do for you. And, you know, I've ordered these in such a way as to proceed from that which I felt was the least profound and, you know, perhaps the least important and work our way up to things of greater importance and greater meaning. 
And that has that has meant that this second hour has gotten much more spiritual and has much more to do with relationship and concepts like dignity and honor and respect and love. These are all things which government are incapable of, incapable of feeling, incapable of expressing. And to the extent that government exceeds its rightful bound of protecting individual rights and makes attempts to intrude upon the sphere of compassion, the sphere of relationship, it only displaces the real thing. It only prevents us from engaging with one another in spiritually meaningful and relational ways. And that kind of all that kind of leads into these last two items on the list that I want to go over this segment and in our final segment this evening. The second to last thing that government can't do. Government can't cannot provide meaning, significance, and purpose. Now, this is extraordinarily important. In fact, I I debated whether or not to make this number one on the list as opposed to number two. And it's it's a close call. It's tough as to which should be one and two here. But this is extraordinarily important because meaning, significance, and purpose are pretty much the the whole reason why we exist it's the it's the it's what we're all getting after ultimately we are searching we are desperate spiritually desperate starving for meaning significance and purpose and historically we've had a source for this and that source has traditionally in religion and you know don't worry i'm not going to start evangelizing to you at least not too much here tonight on your conservative news talk radio station i'll save that for the christian station but you know suffice it to say religion has historically and traditionally provided us with a a means of pursuing a sense of meaning significance and purpose in our lives you know, when we when we look to what it all means and what it's all for and why we put one foot in front of the other, why we get up in the morning, why we keep going to work, why we keep enduring, why we keep showing grace to one another. You know, relationship has been a theme tonight, particularly this hour, as we've gone through this list of things that government can't do. We've talked an awful lot about the concept of compassion and charity and the conveyance of dignity and respect and love. To be able to do these things, and if you're married, if you're married, you know this. If you're a parent, you know this. In order to continue conveying these things and acting in these ways and being graceful in the face of conflict and disagreement and disappointment and perhaps even betrayal, in order to... to, endure those things with grace you have to have something bigger something greater something more meaningful and significant to rely upon and to point to and to keep you moored and keep you grounded and anchored in order to do that and in order and and through that that through doing that you're able to find the greatest rewards that life has to offer which unsurprisingly, has nothing whatsoever to do with material wealth. Nothing. 
you know, when you're on your deathbed, you know, we often talk about the, this this proverbial deathbed situation here on the program. And the reason I go to it is because it's particularly instructive. When we reflect upon our mortality, you know, the biggest one of the biggest reasons why human beings miss out on meaning, significance, and purpose in their lives is because they forget that they're going to die. They forget. Willfully. Because you really can't. You really can't ignore it. I mean, we all drive by, we all whistle past graveyards every single day. Right? It's very obvious that death is coming, and we're all going to face it. It's all. It's going to claim each and every one of us. But we nonetheless engage, in particularly the younger we are, we all engage in various ways of evading that reality and evading that imminent fact in order to try to comfort ourselves. And to the extent that we say we we succeed in evading the reality of our own mortality, we facilitate a evasion also, a correlated evasion of meaning, significance, and purpose. Because when you're on that deathbed, when you're confronted with the imminent reality that your life is going to come to an end, that it is over, that there's no more of it, that you only had the days that came before and you're not going to get another one or very few, at that point, what you're going to be focused on is not the what, but the who. The who and the why and what they mean to you and how much you wasted when you could have been investing it in those people who you care about. That's where you find meaning. That's where you find significance. That's where you find purpose. Relationships are an investment in, in, the, in a very similar sense to any financial investment, in the sense that it requires effort, it requires the expenditure of time and focus and effort over a period of time, you know, little pieces, little contributions, just like investing, you make little contributions to the lives of your children, little contributions to the life of your spouse, little contributions to the lives of your friends and your community and your neighbors and your fellow congregates at your church, little contributions on a daily basis, week to week, month after month, and it all adds up to a large investment that grows and gains meaning, significance, and purpose in your life. Government cannot do this. I mean, is this, do I need to say any more? Do I need to go any further? Do I need to explain why government can't do any of that? Isn't it clear? I, I don't, I, I feel as though it would be a waste of my time to try to explain to you how government can't do any of that. I think it's pretty self-evident. Government cannot invest in relationships. It cannot provide you with meaning, significance, and purpose. And this is why it's so important to keep government in its lane so that we can remain free to do that for ourselves because we need that. We need it. It is, it is the thing, you know, above all else, you know, Jesus Christ, this is as theological as I'll get tonight. Jesus Christ sat with the woman at the well. You, you guys remember this story. You've read this story, hopefully, or at least heard it at some point. And the woman at the well came and, you know, he asked for water and they had this exchange about getting water out of the well. And at one point, Jesus said, I am the water that provides life everlasting. Drink from me and you will never thirst again. Now, the lady took him literally. 
and was like, well, give me this water. Give me this water that's, that I'll never thirst anymore. But what he was speaking to was the, that which we thirst for more profoundly and deeply and meaningfully than physical, literal water. We have this need in our souls to be provided with a fountain of significance and purpose. And that is something that we will never be able to get from an act of Congress or from an executive decree, from a, a royal dictate, or from a bureaucrat. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Brad Omlin producing the show. We come to our number one thing that government can't do for you. And before we we get to, you know, the drum roll, I actually don't have a drum roll ready for you. But before we get to the number one item, let's just review, shall we? Let's go through the entire list of eight things government can't do for you. And again, you know, the purpose in crafting this list and going through it tonight on the program is to remind us of the the great vast expanse of value in our lives which has nothing whatsoever to do with the state, has nothing whatsoever to do with government. And thereby building the case for government remaining limited, for remaining in its lane. Because to the extent that government attempts to come out from its corner where it belongs and to intrude upon these different areas of our lives, it it not only fails in its efforts, but it also displaces the real thing. And that's something that we cannot and should not abide. So here's the list, the whole thing, kit and caboodle, from number eight all the way down to one. Number eight was produce literally anything at all. Government can't produce stuff. It can only point a metaphorical and or literal gun at your head, take your property, and then pay it to others in order to get them to produce it for government. Government can't produce anything. That takes individuals. It takes human beings' human effort. Government cannot determine worth. It cannot decide arbitrarily through an act of Congress, the the dictate of a bureaucrat, what a price ought to be, what economic value is. Government cannot determine truth, either in the factual scientific sense or in the philosophical sense. Government cannot tell you what is right and what is wrong. Government cannot ultimately keep you safe. There, you know, It's important to have a military. It's important to have law enforcement on some level to an appropriate degree. But ultimately, the responsibility for keeping you safe and keeping your family safe and securing the values in your life falls to you. You have to do it. It's your responsibility. Government cannot be compassionate. It lacks both the nature and the capacity to express compassion. And in fact, to the extent it tries to be compassionate, it actually displaces real compassion, which is a product of relationship, which leads us to the next point on the list, which is the conveyance of dignity, respect, and love. Now, that's that's one definition you could utilize for relationship. Government cannot do that. 
You can't convey dignity. It's not going to make you feel respected. Your government check doesn't make you feel like you're loved. If anything, you know, it, it creates a sense of desensitization to relationship and to a, a sense of community and respect. And we covered last segment the fact that government cannot provide us with a sense of meaning, significance, and purpose. You know, and these things, these are the things that traditionally, typically, we search for in our spiritual lives through our various religious pursuits. What does it all mean? What is it all for? What is the purpose of life? And to the extent that people have stepped away from or excluded religion from their lives or spiritual things from their lives, We've seen an uptick in, you know, I, I think this is one of the primary drivers of this, the supposed polarization that we have in our culture and the, the rhetoric being so hostile and things being so violent. It's because people have drawn their sense of meaning, significance, and purpose from stuff, from basically from idols, to put it in theological terms, from idols, from things that are not God. And so, you know, when when your sense of significance is wrapped up in your race or your gender or your tribe or your political party, and you sense as though that is threatened, you're going to react in very unhealthy and destructive ways. All of which leads to the number one thing, which I don't think we need to build too much of a case for because everything we've talked about tonight has conveyed this. The number one thing that government can't do for you is make you happy. It never will. It will never make you happy. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.